I'm Josh Munkin, and you may contribute a verse. I'm Josh Monken, and this is the podcast, You May Contribute a Verse, which has a simple mandate to give voice to creators, their struggles, successes, and the stories of their creation. And now, happy pride, everybody. Our guest this episode is author, activist, and awesome advocate, Claire Rudy Foster. They have a short story collection that came out in November 2019 titled Shine of the Ever, based in grunge-era Portland, Oregon. It's a radical, joy-filled book of linked vignettes, characters intertwining in intimate ways, hurtling towards evolution with no sad endings. It was named by the Oprah magazine as one of the best LGBTQ books of 2019. Foster is also a radically transparent and joy-filled freelance author with pieces appearing all over the place. Washington Post, New York Times, McSweeney's, the list goes on. I became aware of Foster's very personal voice and encouraging perspective for the first time in late 2017 and early 2018 as emotions began to run a bit higher for a lot of folks. Foster's quite active on social media and I've been fortunate to witness their evolution as a writer and of their identity as a queer, non-binary trans person. Reading Shine of the Ever and knowing Foster has helped me evolve into who I am and how I think today, and I hope you'll also be able to experience that same joy. Our conversation, I think, embodies a lot of what we're all thinking about these days. The constant evolution of the self versus external forces, maintaining hope and joy in the face of not always rosy circumstances. As Pride Month comes to a close amid a global pandemic, a recession, and unrest that tend to highlight the core differences between us, I hope you'll take a bit of comfort in our conversation and grow as a result. So let's go now to Claire Rudy Foster's verse. You know, for me, when I when I launched my book last November, Shine of the Ever, I did a 10-city book tour um, split up over two months. I, I traveled in November and I traveled in January. And uh, it's I, I prefer to travel, I think. You know, the, the ease of, of virtual, you know, virtual readings and virtual events is nice, but there's just something very special about being in a bookshop and being in front of, you know, in front of an audience the conversations are paced differently like there's just there's something about it that i i miss i've been dreaming about the cities that i've visited i dreamed about new york last night i i don't know i i think we we do as a culture have a lot you know have a long distance to go in terms of accessibility and, and making things accessible i think that that's hopefully one of the good things that will come out of this but i think uh that for me i would take a couple of really bad you know, plain seats. I would sit in the back by the bathroom on the, the worst, the worst maintained airplane on the planet right now, if it meant that I could safely go, you know, to uh, go back to Manhattan. <laughs> At least we're all missing it together. Yeah, we have that. Did you, did you go into this job wanting to have that connection with your audience, wanting to perform? I mean, you, you talk about or you mentioned looking longingly out the window and typing. I mean, that, that duality is kind of inherent in the writing life. Did you approach that sort of head on? I did. Um, I'm not, um, I'm not an extrovert contrary to popular opinion. I'm an introvert with very good social skills. And my first, um, you know, my first encounters with other writers or storytellers, it was always a public event. It was, you know, a poet who read, their work at my school or a librarian who read a story out loud or, you know, public, um, you know, public slams, poetry readings, that kind of thing. And so for me, like the idea of um, the idea of writing and never appearing publicly just doesn't make sense to me. I, I have been greatly moved by, by some works and, even then it just, it does not compare to seeing the performer do it, do it for you, do it in front of you. So I don't know, like, I think, I think that in terms of a career, I think that part of being a successful writer means working on your public persona and, and being willing to be available um, in a way that, that maybe wasn't normal 50 years ago. Um, you know, to be, to be a personality, to be someone who's celebrated publicly, someone who's, you know, who you can talk to is, is just very different. Um, 
I, I, th- I think that's one of the reasons people like my writing is that they hear my voice in in my work. And that's that's really special to me. That's really meaningful. Do you think that's indelible in having a, cre- uh, a relationship with the creator is to be able to hear their voice? I mean, I, I offer that and, and ask this binary question, knowing that it's more of a gradient as someone who was brought up with free reign to bookstores, pick out whatever suits your taste. I had no relationship with the author except for four words and, and letters in the backs of fantasy novels and things. But um, I never had sort of exposure to live authorship, that connection. Do you think it's critical? I mean... For sort of maximal enjoyment of a, of a work? I just feel like... Okay, so I, I too was encouraged to read whatever I wanted. And I was was and am a great lover of books. I remember from a very young age, if I really loved someone's book, I would write them a letter, care of the publisher, because the address of the publisher, you know, Macmillan, for example, was available on the inside flap of the book. And I would send these fan letters. And every once in a while, I would hear back. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, those letters did more for me, I think, than the original novel that I had fallen in love with. You know, it just, it enchanted me to know that there was another person at the end of that story and that they were receptive and alive and curious, um, that they were human. I think it's so easy to lose the connection to the author, um, you know, in, in just, you know, if, if a book is just a book, then, you know, it's a static object. It can be dissected. We can put it on a syllabus and, and argue about what it means. But, but as long as that author is living, I think that their life and their experience is an intrinsic part of, of our enjoyment as the audience of that creative work. And even afterwards to a, a sort of supplementary extent. Uh-huh. And I think, I think vice versa too, because, you know, as, as we're seeing again, um, thankfully, um, a lot of authors who are say less than savory characters who are dangerous or punitive or abusive, um, we, we don't read their work anymore. The book does not stand alone, whether the author is a positive person or a negative person. They cannot be extracted from each other. Are you making a purposeful attempt to be what you would have wanted when you were growing up, to to be available and transparent to your audience? No, I think I'm just like that. Um, but it's I, <laughs> as an introverted person, I am. I mean, I I I am what I am. I think. Um, you know, I think there's that, that platitude that goes around about, you know, you should try to be the person you needed when you were younger. And I respect that. I didn't need to try. I am the person that I needed when I was younger. I am the person that I need now. Um, it's not an act for me. I think one of the, one of the kindest things that anybody can say to me when they meet me in person is, oh, you're exactly what I expected. You're exactly the same. Um, and that's, that's important to me. I, I try to be as genuine as possible in my public and private behaviors. Um, there is no secret self, though I don't necessarily share all of my baggage publicly. Um, I just, oh my gosh, there's more. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it's back matter, right? <laughs> Somebody else will write about right. it in my biography someday. But, um, I just, you know, I think that I think I don't need to act because I have become that person. Um, when I, you know, I, I get emails, messages every day about something that I've written, usually something that's specific to my experience as a trans person. And many times those people are asking for advice or they have a question or they're grateful to know that they're not alone. Um, and I, I treat those messages very seriously because to me that says that there is something in my writing that is accessible and is inviting. And, um, you know, as somebody who felt alone a lot of the time, I just, um, I really think it's important for a writer, especially a writer who writes about fairly intimate experiences to remain open to the fact that you are a conduit 
for other people's experiences as well. When it comes down to you sitting down to write, whether that's a piece for, I don't know, I think something of yours appeared in Marie Claire, maybe recently or (laughs) Allure, sorry, (laughs) not not something to which I'm subscribed. Sorry. Well, maybe you should, you know, (laughs) maybe I should broaden my horizons. Um, I mean, whether, whether it's a magazine piece or a short story for your next collection or a piece of your memoir, what, what is your mission when you sit down to write? Is it to pull from yourself a piece of yourself and document that either in fiction or non? No. Or how do you see that? Um, No, I, I, as a reader, I don't enjoy feeling as though I'm reading an author's autopsy of themselves. I don't seek that kind of self-excoriation. To me, when I sit down to write, I'm not carving myself up. I'm not saying, okay, well, we're, we'll go into this particular piece of trauma or this experience. Um, to me, you know, as I've sort of hinted at in my short story collection, Shine of the Ever, um, my my purpose in storytelling is always to present some element of the human experience as a parable. My job, I feel, as a storyteller is never to talk about myself, even when I'm writing in the first person about something that has happened to me. I I'm very conscious that I'm never writing about me to me. Um, I'm trying to write in a way that moves my reader. Um, When I was in my MFA program, which I don't recommend, by the way, nobody should get an MFA. They're silly. Um, I got to work with Pam Houston, who uh, is fabulous and an extremely generous teacher she was also the teacher of James Fry, who wrote A Million Little Pieces, uh, as you may recall, the book that scandalized Oprah. And uh, she was his mentor. And I asked her what she thought about the scandal surrounding that book. And she looked me dead in the eye and said, if they were moved, they got their money's worth. And that has really stuck with me, not because it's about lying or misrepresenting, you know, a novel as a memoir or a memoir as a novel. Like that's a lot of that is, you know, a decision that's made higher up the chain than the author. But, you know, the writer's purpose is to move the reader. And I think that it's, it's less about me translating my experience so that someone else can understand what it's like to be me than to tell a story that causes my reader to reflect on their own life and their own perspective and maybe make some changes to those beliefs. Is it fair to say, I mean, how I'm hearing that is kind of, you're not just working towards character progression of the characters that appear in your work, yourself included, but you're working on character progression and unlocking things in your audience. Correct. Are there pitfalls um, to looking to unlock those sorts of things? In your audience, I mean, either for you yourself, since you are open and honest about who you are, or uh, I guess when you're treading on fairly intimate and sensitive subjects or contents, do you feel a higher sense of responsibility to be sensitive, to walk the line, to put yourself in everybody's shoes? Or how how do you think about that part? Well, I think think that empathy is a critical ingredient of being a good writer. I think that even technicians who are obsessed with plot or who write, you know, we we have this uh, trend right now for the, you know, the deeply personal internal novel where there's a lot of psychological development and we understand why a character does what they do. But I think um, if you're really going to understand human nature, you've got to be able to feel and understand where other people's feelings come from. So, you know, the the biggest obstacle to that in my writing is understanding why I feel a particular way, disposing of those prejudices, getting out of my own way, and then also understanding that, as you said, when you're on this thin ice, when you tread on these very personal, intimate subjects, people do not like it. Some people really don't like being challenged. Um, my, my own family... Um, is is regularly 
disturbed by my writing. Um, my, my parents have told me that they, they do not read my work. In fact, we are estranged now that I've transitioned. But I remember my mother calling me after um, an essay I had gotten published about um, recovering from heroin addiction. And I asked her if she'd read it and she said, no. And I said, well, why not? You read all kinds of other um, upsetting books. You know, you read this really dark stuff. And she said, it's different when it's your own child. So, you know, you can't please everybody. And I think at the end of the day, if I'm serving, um, if I'm serving the audience, if I'm trying to move my reader rather than, you know, propping up my own ego or trying to polish some image of myself or be impressive, I think, I think I'm doing the right thing. Has that, um, if I can ask about the, the estrangement in a relationship sure. with your parents, I mean, I know, I know that your, your transition has happened over the course of the last couple of years. Yes. You've been really public about that. And coincidentally, right about the time that you and I were, were originally supposed to speak and your collection, Shine of the Ever, was due to come out, you also uh, underwent some transitional surgery, if I'm characterizing that the right way. I mean, has that... Um, has it been the physical transition that's been the hardest for the family or has it been a longer term um, struggle? That's a great question. Not directly related no, to, no. Your, to your That's writing. a good question. Um, I think, I mean, it's always hard to say where families turn on themselves. Um, I have to say that I don't believe all families are meant to be together. I don't think that all families are meant to stay whole. So I accept our estrangement as part of a natural process. Um, the physical stuff certainly ignited a lot of underlying tension. Um, you know, my parents are Obama-loving liberals who have this strict code of personal beliefs, stricter than I think any fundamentalist Christian, although they are atheists. Um, I was raised in a very limiting, very heterosexual environment, and it was not good for me. Um, I've done a lot of work around forgiving my parents for their limitations and trying to understand where they come from. I, I think they truly did want the best, but our, our definition of what that means are, is very, very different. Um, we had always had trouble. Um, my feelings were very big. My mode of self-expression was different. They didn't approve of my sexuality. Um, they went completely hands-off when I had troubles with addiction, um, in including refusing to acknowledge my drug habit that caused me to overdose and nearly die in their home. I was not sent to treatment. I received no support for any of the issues that I was dealing with on my own. Um, so I think, I think they had quite a bit of resentment toward me as a high maintenance child. I think I was a lot of trouble for them, a lot of stress. Um, but when I informed them that I was going to be taking steps to physically transition, to go on testosterone and eventually move toward top surgery, um, they just could not handle that. I think that the denial of my identity was very important to them. I think that they put their comfort before my happiness. And in fact, that same dynamic played out in several other very important relationships to me around the same time where the heterosexual cisgender need to be comfortable was more important than me being happy. Um, around the time I told them this, it was Christmas. My parents both made some really unwise and ignorant comments to me about transgender people. They characterized me in a way that was harmful and violent. And um, when I told them that I didn't appreciate that, they chose to cut me off. So, I mean, it's, it's not an uncommon experience um, for trans people, which doesn't make it okay. Just because something is common doesn't mean it's normal. But... Um, that was, it was really heartbreaking and um, it, was, it, it wasn't a surprise. I was really disappointed because I think I always, I always try to think the best of the people I love. I try to 
try to hold that hope out. But um, I don't know. I'm, I'm always happy to hear when there are parents, especially parents our age or younger, who actually do care about raising an LGBTQ child and who are accepting of that child and supportive of that child, because those, uh, those small actions of acceptance from a very, very young age can have a lifelong positive impact on that kid and whether or not they end up, say, like me, or if they end up, you know, happy and well-balanced and uh, self-sustaining later in life. That trust is, you know, as a parent myself, I understand that I'm going to spend my entire life earning and re-earning and re-earning my own child's trust. And that trust is one of the most sacred gifts I'm given. And I try to live up to it every single day. Do your parents have a relationship with your child? Not anymore. It's a package deal. Yep. And, um, you know, I feel conflicted about that, but I also think, um, I think that we are a package deal and I think that I don't want my child being raised by somebody who is transphobic. I wouldn't want him to have a teacher who was transphobic. I wouldn't want him to have a babysitter who is homophobic or bigoted and in some other way. I don't want him to be raised by those people. And, um, I, I'm still dealing with an immense amount of damage from my own childhood um, because of my parents and their extremely limited beliefs around uh, sex and gender. And not to mention, you know, the other things. I just, I just, I, I don't think it's healthy. And I think that, I think that he can, I think that he can learn better things from people who are not toxic. You have used... Well, you've sort of characterized your parents and your relationship with your parents in probably a lot of ways that would be familiar for a lot of parents who aren't ready to face this aspect of reality. And yet you've used a lot of terms that are based in love and understanding and forgiveness. And, and you know, you've had a number of years to come to terms with this, but this is a, this is a big, bold note in the notes of, of things that I want to talk about with you in that, it, just the word love, it, it, I know that you have one, four, three tattooed real big across your, <laughs> your nose, yes. which is a, a really just an amazing place to have one, four, three tattooed for those that don't, that don't know that might listen to this one, four, three standing for, I love you, the uh, number of letters in each of the words, something that I particularly associate with Mr. Rogers, but, um, I'm just remarking on how that seems to be rooted in um, your words continue to be rooted in love, at least to my perception. Always. I think they have to be. I think, um, you know, I think for me, part of love is radical acceptance of the self and of others um, and of acknowledging that all people, even the people who harm me, or threaten me are still lovable and they are still loved and they are still worthy. Um, I think that when I can begin to see those lovable parts in my enemy, I can truly start to do the work of dismantling the beliefs that harm me. And I think that, I think that one of the important things we do with stories is recontextualize hatred and, and bigotry and discrimination. And we can show them not as, you know, evil absolutes, although they may be. I think that we can show that there is a higher moral ground and that there is room for everybody on the high ground. Um, now, I'm not saying that it's one person's uh, responsibility to educate or convert everybody to a particular set of beliefs, but I think that doing the work through story of explaining and of, you know, inspiring and, um, you know, maybe startling or unsettling people, I think that that's a form of love, too. Um you mentioned Mr. Rogers, who's a big favorite of mine as well. And I just, you know, I, 
I know that he does condemn hatred. He condemns hate speech. He took the KKK to court. Um, But the fact is that nobody is born knowing how to hate. We're taught those things. We're born with the ability to love. And in stories, and especially when I'm appearing publicly, sometimes as the only trans person that my audience has ever seen in person, the only trans person they've ever been in a room with before or shaken hands with before, I know that what I'm doing in causing a revolution in their thoughts is a form of love. Um, You know, we're told uh, from an early age, you know, what is it? uh, That if someone strikes you, you should turn the other cheek. And the real translation of that phrase is not to turn the other cheek so that they can hit you on the other side. Uh, Turn the other cheek means to rebel and revolt, to push back. And so that's, that's what I've been doing, especially in my, in my writing about the queer community, Um, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, I'm trying to push back against this idea that the trans person must always be a victim, or that we must be weak, or that we must be passive. I think love is a verb. And I think that um, when I'm living in that place and writing from that place, I, I really have faith that, that the message will be received, whatever it is. Uh, everything that you've just said in the last couple of minutes, I think is very, is incredibly well reflected in Shine of the Ever. Um, it, you have described it other places as, and I'm going to get the description wrong, but um, it, a book of queer short stories with no, with no sad endings, yeah. or I'll let you describe what it is and where where it comes from oh yeah that's that's pretty close it's a a short story collection of linked pieces about the intimate lives of queer and trans people in grunge era portland and uh no sad endings was a really really important element of this book um especially because it wasn't necessarily written for just a trans or queer audience it was written for people who are not in my community and um, and might have different expectations about what happens to queer and trans characters. And I'll say that I've, I, I've read that and think about the work in the no sad endings term as someone who, uh, you know, we, we talked about bookstores and unfettered access to fiction and books and all that sort of thing. My, my traditional flavor has been novels. Mm -hmm. Turning someone on to short stories is maybe not the like life altering um, change that you're trying to, (laughs) to, to make happen for your audience. But um, I've I've been really struck that it's uh, your short stories don't have well-defined endings. Mm -hmm. There's no conclusions or there's no wrap up or denouement or whatever in a lot of your stories. Um, and, and it is not as though everyone ends up happy by the end of them. There's some, some real serious stuff that happens. Um, I guess, how do you, how do you think about how you wrap these short stories up? Hmm. Cause that's, that's really stuck with me. Um, how some of the, some of the stories taper off and we're, we're not as a society sort of trained to be okay with going over the cliff and having to imagine what's at the bottom. (laughs) Uh, I think that for people like me, the world is always ending every day. It's, it can be very, it can be very hard to accept that we don't know what happens next. I, I came of age, was born in the eighties and came of age in the nineties. And I'm a lifelong reader of the New Yorker fiction section. Um, so when I started reading short stories, what I was, you know, what I was raised on were these sort of ephemeral or obscure non-conclusions in fiction, um, you know, stories that sort of float off. I mean, Alice Monroe is great at this. Um, she's, she's fantastic. Um, Amy Hempel, Lydia Davis, these writers who, who are not writing to say, you know, A and then B and then C and then happily ever after. First of all, that's not true to my experience as a queer trans person. There are very few happily ever afters in my life and in my community, um, which is a separate issue entirely. 
but from a, from a creative standpoint, um, I'm not often writing a, a conclusion in the sense of plot, but I write a conclusion in the emotional sense. Um, when I write fiction, I try to think like a songwriter. Um, I was told that I'm, <laughs> you know, I, I'm a poet masquerading as a fictional author, which is um, high praise. I think poets are much more evolved than a lot of us are who do prose um, in terms of language. But I, I write, um, I write trying again to work against the, the audience's need to be moved. And in, in that sense, I think that my stories are providing a sense of um, satisfaction or curiosity. You know, by the time you exit that story, your feelings should have changed. And, and I think that they do that. Um, the other reason that there's no hard ending on any of these is that um, they are linked. So although the stories are in a particular order in this book, they could be read in any order. They could be read back to front or front to back like a mixtape. So, um, you know, for me, it's, it's playfulness and, and also, you know, it's a form of queerness because it, um, it plays with your expectation of what short story form should be. That's interesting that you, how you phrase that, just to restate what I just heard and make sure that I'm hearing that right. How you phrase that is even the order of the stories and how you think about the structure is queer. Yes. It's not, it's, it's not linear. No, it's just uh, that mindset permeates every, every aspect uh-huh. of, of the book. I think that's great. Do you want to read something? Yeah. Do you have any requests? Well, we need to talk about astrology. Oh, astrology. Uh, that was something that you committed to educating me on. So <laughs> I was thinking this was months ago and you can backtrack on that if you want, but I was thinking maybe the first couple of pages of Venus conjunct Saturn. Sure. You're such a good sport. Open-mindedness is the, the, uh, the <laughs> it's a slippery the slope. Right? <laughs> right. Yes. Astrology. You are a good sport about astrology. Let's see here. <laughs> Venus conjunct Saturn. Right there in Angie's chart, it said to avoid Scorpios. She was an actual scientist, and so it was clear which side of the is astrology exact debate she should have landed on. She knew astrology was a qualitative atmospheric science, like meteorology, a theory, not a practice. You couldn't use it to reliably predict anything because its proof was in your lived experience. A horoscope became true but she couldn't seem to keep away. It didn't matter what the other person's birthday was. Scorpio didn't matter. Any sign she tried, all of her relationships seemed to be problematic. Also, there was no such thing as a good, healthy breakup. Also, being a Pisces, Angie struggled to see problems until they were already right on top of her rising over her head like a wave that was so big she'd never be able to outswim it. This time, the wave's name was Kate. She agreed to have an early dinner with Kate, even though her personal forecast cautioned against a Venus conjunct Saturn. She almost never read the planetary movements. The sun sign and sometimes the ascendant were enough to give her an idea of what to expect. Saturn meant conflict, unhappiness, and old wounds. In the conjunct position with Venus, it meant relationship problems, almost guaranteed. But astrology wasn't that accurate. And the more she thought about Kate, the less she wanted to believe in its power to prophesy. Women who made decisions solely based on the positions of the stars or read their daily horoscopes too closely were the objects of derision. She wasn't going to be silly. She closed the horoscope app and texted Kate. So in this story, Angie is an actual scientist. She's a a lab researcher at a hospital that is trying to find a cure for AIDS. And she dates a Scorpio whose name is Kate. And Kate is a boxer. Um... So there's this, there, like you said, there is in this story 
questions about identity and self, you know, self-knowledge. And, and in this story, I think as for a lot of queer people, um, astrology kind of becomes this shorthand for, um, for various personality traits. So when I say that so-and-so is a Scorpio, I, I then go on to, you know, to say that that's, you know, that's the sign of sex or the sign of violence or, you know, that's, that's what all Scorpios are like. But um, it is a little bit tongue in cheek because it's become quite a, quite a cliche. <laughs> Hashtag not all Scorpios. Um, are you a Scorpio? Oh, I'm a Taurus. Of course you are. <laughs> <laughs> I'm teasing. What do you mean by that? (laughs) (laughs) No, it's a turkey thing to say to somebody. (laughs) My son is a Taurus. He's perfect. I like him already. Yeah. See, there you go. Are you an April Taurus or a May Taurus? The May Taurus. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) You're sage-like nodding. So what does that mean? I'm just making a face like an asshole. No. (laughs) No, I think, um, I mean, it's it's interesting that you bring it up. Like, people... um, you know, it's so funny. You know, astrology is, is it fills in a lot of gaps for me. And I think other people in my community, um, I've said that I feel that for many of us who have been excluded from more traditional faith communities, uh, new age spirituality or like non-traditional spiritual practice has certainly become more popular in the queer community. It's like we we exist outside of those more rigid traditional spaces, and astrology is a is a spiritual tool for some of us, um, or a practice of self knowledge. I also think you can tie it to things like Jungian psychology, where what's interesting isn't the particular, um, you know, the image or the or the archetype. What's interesting is how you feel about it, right? So for me, in my real life, um, I, I love astrology. I will, I will write you a horoscope. I will talk to you for an hour about your chart. But what it's really given me is a language, a common language for us to talk about your life and talk about your feelings. Um, you know, if I say, look at your chart and you're like, oh yeah, you know, my, my Saturn's in, you know, my Saturn's in Scorpio and, and, uh, you know, that worries me. I might say, well, why does that worry you? You know, what does that mean for you? You know, they say Saturn is the planet of conflict or the things that sort of dog you, you know, like, a, a personality conflict that you'll have your whole life or a, a dynamic that isn't healthy. And, you know, we see those things in, in normal psychology, like that's the kind of thing you go to therapy for. So, you know, it's, it's this way of, of talking through those things in a way that feels productive and is also a little bit magical. And I think that, you know, as someone who was raised by scientists myself, I think that magic is an essential part of science as well, and especially of scientific research is this belief that there's still something that we don't know or that there's a way of understanding it. So although astrology may not be like a science science or even like a fake science or a, or a <laughs> faux science, I think it's, um, it's a method and it's a technique for getting somebody to open up about themselves. And that's, uh, that's why I really love it and why I, why I use it in my stories. Well, I'm glad I made us talk about it because you've convinced me you brought me over to the side of astrology that's all it took (laughs) as a way as a way what's that that's all it took (laughs) yeah that's all no that's all it took i mean context is really important Mm -hmm. and as someone who well if you are someone i won't say i'm this way because i'm i'm open to whatever you just convinced me of astrology but you know if you are someone who ostensibly um believes in fact Mm-hmm. and believes in the pursuit of knowledge and truth and absolutes and science, you can easily look at astrology and dismiss it offhandedly. Mm-hmm. But the way that you phrase that and approach your um, observance of astrology as a conversation point, as a gradient that allows you to label things in a way that helps you understand mm-hmm. the world, I think is really powerful. And I, you know, we're, we're talking about 
transitioning and sexuality and gender and, and all those sorts of things. And I, I am seeing parallels between them. We, we have more within ourselves than man and woman or straight or bi uh-huh. or, or gay, just the same way that astrology has. I'm not even going to pretend to use the, <laughs> the, right, the right terminology. It's um, their, their labels and categories yep. to help us understand. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I think too that, you know, like you said, a lot of people care about truth or hard facts. And, and yes, there are certain things that are facts that are immovable facts and are just part of, you know, part of life, you know, like gravity is a fact. Um, we have a theory to understand it, but at the end of the day, when I, you know, if I drop my coffee mug, it's going to hit the floor. Um, I think that one of the reasons I like astrology or, you know, the I Ching or, or tarot cards or, or whatever these tools are is, you know, the same reason that scientific research um, really thrills me, which is that between ignorance and knowledge, there is a lot of doubt. And I think that we often rush through that doubt or through the period of questioning because we're so eager to have an answer and being willing to sit in the place where we don't know where we're still discovering or testing or you know running a trial again you know trying trying an experiment over and over again um i think that 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 period is really powerful and i think that there's a freedom in in the questioning where you don't have to know, you're not in a hurry to know, um, your identity isn't tied up in the result that you get, you know, you're still, you're still unburdened by having a final answer. And I think, I think we spend more time in that space than we'd like to admit. It's an uncomfortable place to be and it's challenging in a binary culture that focuses on just right and wrong or man or woman or, you know, up or down or real or false. It's, um, it's, it's freeing to live in that gray area for me. I agree. I think it's more fun to live inside the mystery of it, mm-hmm. awaiting definition and conclusion mm-hmm. and maybe never getting there. I agree. I mean, I think for, for me, you know, again, like with regards to science, I think, I think the investigation is more interesting and, you know, at the end of the trial, whatever it is, I'm going to be less interested in what you discovered than how you got there. You know, what are your methods? What was your thesis? Did you change your mind? What does your data look like? Um, where did you get lost? Where did you fail? You know, those, those elements in, in life as in the lab, they tell me a lot more about somebody than the conclusion they reached. You know, many people reach the same conclusion through many, many different paths, arguably as many paths as there are human beings. Many of us come to the same conclusions through very, very different methods. And so the method is what tells me who you are, not the thing that you ended up believing. Again, perfectly encapsulated in all the stories within Shine of the Ever. Thank you. You're being very consistent. That that is (laughs) me. (laughs) You are as you portray yourself to be. (laughs) Does what it says on the tin. (laughs) Right, that's right. Uh, How, I mean, we, we would be remiss if we did not I guess, talk a little bit about the moment that we're in right now. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the weird, crazy um, search for justice yeah. moment that we're in. Um, how, how are you, as someone who is a person that's defined by love and does what they say on the tin, how, how are you approaching how you think about the moment that we're living in with protests and the toppling of statues and a corrupt administration mm. and um, and pride month and death and all that sort of thing. I mean, how, how, how do you feel right now in this moment? I feel that I was born for this moment. And I feel that one, four, three on your knuckles has be- never been more appropriate. It's, I mean, this is the time. Um, I think that some people live their entire lives, never feeling called And I feel that voices that are outside what is 
in the center. Um, we have a lot to say. I think, you know, I think that justice, it's interesting that you use that term that's so often thrown around as an absolute as well. You know, we look to the law as though it was just or as though it was moral or fair or even ethical. And the law is not any of those things. And so this is an interesting time because I think that we really are seeing as a collective, we're seeing people having new realizations about themselves and a new type of socially driven justice from the outside to the center um, that uplifts as many people as possible and centers voices that were ignored or excluded before. And that to me is immensely exciting. You know, for me, as I've become less rigid in my understanding of myself, and as I've become more comfortable with um, being, you know, being on the outside, I have experienced great freedom. Um, just in the last few years, I think I've, I still have more learning to do, and that excites me and it thrills me. Um, I just, you know, I think that. I think I'm immensely lucky to be alive at this particular time. You know, even, even though it's scary sometimes that, you know, this is a pandemic and we have protests in every state and, you know, I can hear the helicopter, you know, going over my apartment all night, every night, you know, filming protesters, all kinds of frightening things. But, but I have, I have faith in, in human beings and I have faith that, this uprising is long overdue and that justice will be done, whatever it looks like. I, I don't think you can have this many people involved and not get a better outcome than what we had before. I think that's a great way to think about the moment that we're in, in the, in the context of everything that we've talked about for the last hour is that, you know, there will be no definitive ending to this uprising and we have yet to see how it's going to play out but to approach that um, in your shoes with a feeling of hopefulness that change will come is really powerful it will the change is coming and i think that we can hasten that change and encourage and nurture that change by listening to the people who are most marginalized so listening to black trans sex workers listening to people who are excluded from conversations about especially health care or housing or, um, you know, basic human needs, um, you know, people who are, are, who are not housed, people who are not employed. Those who have the least power should be the ones who lead this. And I think the more that we can empower and listen to those voices, the better we will all be off as a society. You know, now that we're in this moment and your week is filled with events and your your book has been out for a number of months, I mean, how, how do you feel about how that side of your life, the job side, the business side, how, how do you feel the reception has gone to your work? I am humbled by how well my book has been received, truly. I, I filled seats in 10 different cities. Um, with people who didn't all know me, <laughs> you know, I feel, um, I feel excited for the next thing. I know I'm extraordinarily lucky to do what I do, especially as a trans person, um, who doesn't, you know, come from money, who doesn't have financial support from my family. Um, you know, I'm a self-supporting single parent who is queer and visibly and vocally transgender, um, you know, I, I feel really lucky. You know, the the book has been featured on NPR. Um, it's been in Oprah Magazine. It has gone places that I would never have imagined my book or any of my work would ever have gone. And that's really meaningful to me. Um, I started my life feeling positive that I was nobody and convinced that nothing I had to say 
was going to affect the kind of change I wanted to bring into the world. And over the years, I'm just so humbled and so grateful to learn that no matter what is happening um, inside of me, no matter what kind of self-doubt I may experience, um, people are listening and they do understand what I'm saying. And I, I've found my audience. I couldn't be happier. Well, Foster, I'm so happy for you. Thank you. Um, that pleases me to, to no end that, um, that it's been so well received. And I certainly have gotten a lot out of reading it as well. I hope folks continue to be changed by your work. Thank you so much. Episode 22 of You May Contribute Verse has come to an end as it was foretold. Foster is on the socials at CRF underscore PDX. Support their work and buy their book by visiting ClaireRudyFoster.com. That's C-L-A-I-R-E-R-U-D-Y-F-O-S-T-E-R.com. And do buy a copy of that book. It's so good. Not only will you enjoy the heck out of it, but you'll be better for it in the end. You May Contribute a Verse is a homespun production produced, edited, recorded, conceptualized, and marketed by me, Josh Munkin, from the darkness and comfort of my basement. Find the show on Twitter and Facebook as at Verse Show. That's V-E-R-S-E-S-H-O-W. Find me on everything as Josh Monkwords, all one word. The artwork for You May Contribute a Verse is an amazing picture commissioned for the podcast from a very talented artist, Charlie Munkin, age six. Love you, Charlie. The show's music is provided graciously by Robbie Zarr via tracks from his album, A Tragic But Happy Horse. Engage with his music and musings at partist.com. That's P-A-R-T-I-S-T dot com. If you would be so kind, however you're listening to this, let me know if you do via rating, which is nice, or just a quick message. It means a lot and validates what I'm doing. And finally, remember the answer, that you are here, that life exists and identity, that the powerful play goes on, and you may contribute a verse.